0: This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Y'all, we're doing something different this time. (laughs) We are actually going to talk about our favorite books halfway through the year so that we don't have a four-hour episode at the end of the year. So welcome to our brand new half-yearly best books of the year so far. Yay. We might have had a lot of champagne. (laughs) (laughs) No. That's definitely a new (laughs)
1: thing
2: for the (laughs)
0: podcast. (laughs) So we will see where this goes. (laughs) I also have screamed multiple times, save your words, stop talking. Mm. We're going to say this when the microphone is on. So I hope that you took that literally so that we can have all of our words in this actual episode. But let's introduce ourselves as we're going around. I'm Laura Tremaine, the host of 10 Things to Tell You. I talk about books. I write books. And I love, more than anything, talking about books with you two, my longtime real-life book club. And I always say it like that, my real-life book club. <laughs> <laughs> as as if other things are not real life. <laughs> I also always say, because it matters to me, that for a long time, for circumstantial reasons, our book club is only three people. And I always mention that because I feel like when people want to start a book club, they're new somewhere, or they just want to, you know, start something for themselves, they think that it has to look a certain way. They think they have to have 12 people. They think they have to serve dinner. They think that they have to have a book club, like, look a very specific way, like it might look in the movies or how you see it look on Instagram Our book club is three people, and if you don't mind me saying so, I think it works great. Yep, it's excellent. (laughs) And so just keep that in mind. Buddy Reads, even if it's just you and one other friend, can really feed that part of your soul that wants to read something with someone, that wants to discuss books, that wants to have a reason to get together, all of those things. You don't have to make it harder than it has to be to have a very meaningful and loving book club like ours. Stephanie, Will you introduce yourself?
2: I'm Stephanie Newman-Smith. I am a development executive living in Los Angeles. My favorite thing is being in a book club. This book club has been like the great joy of my life. I was raised by teachers, so I'm like a big reader and always have been. As listeners of this podcast will know, I almost always read novels, for which I get teased, (laughs) Um, but I promise I am working on nonfiction. I really promise. You don't
0: have to read nonfiction. (laughs) Yes, she
2: does. (laughs) (laughs) I brought one today, so progress is being made. I'm opening
0: my eyes. Look at you growing up. (laughs) It's growth. (laughs) In my 30s. (laughs) Yasmeen, introduce yourself to the listeners, please. Hi, I'm Yasmeen Dunn.
1: I am a TV executive living in Los Angeles. And I adore books. I love books. I have always just devoured them. I read very, very quickly So consequently, I read a lot and reading is also a huge part of my job, like Steph's. Mm -hmm. And I love our little book club. I think it's like it's the best incarnation of book club, I think, because we can have really intimate conversations. We know each other really well and we're just super comfortable and, you know, and so our conversations about books are always part of our conversations about life.
0: That's right. I agree. That's right. Okay, I always like to start with just sort of taking a general temperature of our reading life right now. We've done this, I don't know if we've always done this, but especially starting in the pandemic when we started to be like, how are you able to read right now? What are you leaning towards? Are you escaping? Are you educating yourself? Are you reading at all? We really have started in the last few years this conversation by sort of just taking a general you know, gauge of where we are in our reading life. We all read for work and we all read for pleasure. And those things do not always overlap. And so I guess I just want to hear where y'all are in the middle of 2023. If, are there things happening in your life or in the world that are affecting your reading choices? Are you, you know, gravitating towards a certain genre Like, sort of just what does your reading life look like? I'll go first because I don't have a ton to say, honestly. Like, I do feel like the pandemic changed my reading a little bit. Becoming an author myself changed my reading a little bit. And just, you know, what I was reading for research and what I was reading to escape into, my kids getting a little bit older, or maybe me getting a little bit older, (laughs) hard to tell has changed my reading a little bit. I, you know, as listeners know, I tend to read really dark. I prefer dark. And for the first time, I've read some lighter things that I really enjoyed and didn't roll my eyes at. So I don't know that my taste is getting less dark, but it's definitely been changing slowly, which I've been open about over years. But I don't have like any big markers for what my reading feels like right now. I'm reading at my normal pace, I feel like. I always read nonfiction in the morning to start my day. I read novels at night. For a long time, I have complained about chasing the shiny bestsellers, which we're going to talk about today. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Isn't that funny? I brought like (laughs) exclusively bestsellers almost to, to talk about today. And I sometimes lamented that, that I wish that I was choosing better instead of just following the bookstagram trends. I wish that I was paying more attention to the type of books I actually like to read and, you know, doing more backlist. And I have done some of that, actually. But it's always fun in a public way like this to kind of talk about the books that everyone's talking Mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Totally. So there's like a balance between for this show, wanting to be in the know of, like, what the big books are, but then also, like, sort of reading things that are off the beaten path to talk about those, too, because who wants to listen to a show that's talking about the same books everyone's talking about, you know? So it's kind of a balance, but I'm always thinking about that when I make my reading choices. I'm thinking about this show. I'm thinking about my own taste. I'm thinking about being part of the wider literary conversation. And sometimes those three things aren't perfectly in balance, honestly. So... That's sort of where I am. Yasmin, what's your reading life like right now?
1: Well, I'm looking at my list right now and I started the year with a lot of nonfiction and then as things started to get like more complicated in other areas of my life, I totally switched to fiction and like lighter fiction. You guys remember the Pandemic episode, I was all about romantic like romances, mm-hmm. so I started doing like lighter fiction for just a, as a little bit of escapism. But then when I look, like in May, I kind of went back to my regular self of um, nonfiction. So it's clear that my pattern is fiction for escapism, and like the regular reads are nonfiction. It's just sort of what I'm interested in, though. Like there's always things where I'm like, oh,
0: I want to learn more about that, or oh, that's really interesting. What are you looking at? Do you keep an app? Do you keep a list on your phone? I How- keep a list on my notes
1: phone and it's on the notes on the iPhone and it says books 2023 and I have one that says books 2022, 2021, 2020. So I think it goes all the way back to the first time we did our sh- first show, all my book lists. So I just write them down with the date
0: I finished them and the author and the title. You don't put a star rating or anything? No, no. Why? So you just rely on your own brain of remembering how you felt about it? Yeah. Because if it's a book that I want to bring to this
1: episode, I'll remember it. Mm -hmm. If I don't remember it, then it's not one of my favorite books, you know, because there was one on here where I, I remember being really excited to read. And then I looked at the list, and I was like, what? Like, I had to look up the book that I read in January because it really didn't make an impression on me. And some of them I can just look at the date and remember how it made me feel. Mm. And there's one book this year, you guys, that was like, <sighs> it was just like reading my life. And it was really amazing and sad and terrible all at the same time. Are you going to talk about that in a minute? Yes, that's the one I told you you couldn't talk about. Okay. <laughs> but are you saying
0: that you only keep track of it in this notes app on your phone? Because we do these episodes together. I keep track of the dates because we do the
1: episodes together. So I can track like what I was feeling at that time. But I've always
2: kept a list. I've always kept a list. I just didn't keep a list with dates. Got it. Okay. I only keep track of the books I read because of this episode. Well, you just started doing. <laughs> I started doing it last year, and this year I've been really conscientious about it. I keep it in a physical notebook. I have a work notebook that I work out of all the time, and the front, the first page is 2023 20, books, and I keep a list and I number them and I just write the name and the author, and that is the only information I put down. And I list all of the books I've read. You don't put what you like. I thought you put what you liked. Nope. Oh. I literally put no information other than the title and the like, the title and the author. Okay. So I'm like, oh well, come end of the year, I'll remember what I liked. Do you? Eh, half the time, <laughs> <laughs> it's unclear. I mean, the ones that really stand out, I'm like, oh, I loved that because I remember. Like, I've gone through. I keep a spreadsheet of everything I read for work mm-hmm. digitally. <laughs> And I can go back to my spreadsheet, like, it's just a continuous spreadsheet, so it goes back a few years. And I can go back and be like, man, I love that novel, which I do sometimes for this, because some of my favorite novels that came out this year I read, like, two years ago. So sometimes we'll be like, oh, like, that was amazing. I remember how I felt. I loved that novel. For that one, I keep a one-line note of everything I read for work. So I'm like, oh, love this, didn't love this. Sometimes I'll do, like, a one-sentence, like, it was about this, so I remember. mm mm-hmm. But for my personal reading, I literally only just
0: keep a list. Okay, well, first of all, I'm so flattered and did not know any of this that y'all kept notes specifically for the episodes. That makes (laughs) me feel so good. Secondly, if you're wondering why Steph gets to read books two weeks early... Uh, like a year early. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, uh, that was her little humble brag of like, I get to read things early for work. It, it was. Worked. It was. <laughs> I Sorry. Meant to, <laughs> I meant to say years, not weeks. And it's because she's a development executive. So she's reading things that might potentially be made into TV or movies. This is a benefit to working in this sliver of Hollywood. But I'm just like loving that y'all keep track of this, knowing that you're going to be on the show. Yeah. It's like really... I don't know. It's truly special to me.
1: Yeah. And I started doing the dates for the first show because... No, for the second show. Because it was just interesting for me to look at what I was reading when. Because it really did track with, like, what was going on in my life. And that's just how my reading has always been. Like, what Mm -hmm. I'm reading is a direct reflection of how I'm feeling. And honestly, if I'm feeling fine, I'm reading more nonfiction because I have the space in my brain. And a lot of the nonfiction that I read is kind of emotional. So it means like I can, I have the space to do that. When I'm reading like super light fiction or bestseller fiction, it's because I'm sad.
0: Mm, it's because you're sad? Yeah,
1: usually sad or stressed. And like I just need something light. I need escapism. Mm-hmm.
2: It's funny, I do something a little bit similar in which I can track my mood based on whether or not I'm reading fiction that's darker. Mm-hmm. Like we re- I read I tried two this year when I was feeling really anxious, just in general about life. One of them, which I think we're gonna talk about later, is a book that's so violent that I was like, ooh, I'm not in the headspace for mm-hmm. this. And I I had to stop because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I can I cannot read this right now. And so when I'm anxious, I read total fluff. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm feeling better, I'm willing to more like engage with the darker. The darker or just the more serious or anything that takes more, quite frankly, just like emotional bandwidth, which I don't do when I'm stressed.
0: I don't know that I pick books that mirror my mood in the same way that y'all are describing, but I always remember a book by where I was when I was reading it. hmm almost always so i will will remember if i was traveling of course that's an easy one maybe but i'll even remember oh i read this while i was like waiting at volleyball every day this week or whatever like i just even if it's not that memorable i always remember i sat in my car and read this for a long time i read this while i drove through the in and out drive through line like i just remember that i really re- i really tie where i was yeah. to mm-hmm. what i was reading Really strongly. And one of the reasons that I wanted to do this halfway through the year episode, obviously, I love recording with you. I love talking about books with you. And I didn't want our end of the year episode to be such a chore because we all read a lot of books putting it all into one episode is a lot. And also, as we joke about every single year, but that is totally true, I always suffer from end-of-year bias, like Mm -hmm. recently read bias. And so I will have just finished something in the fall that I loved and I'm passionate about, and it is suddenly my favorite book of the year because I have forgotten that I read something in February Mm -hmm. that was amazing. And so I really wanted to have this... Conversation here, even though I'm sure some of the books that we talk about today might make it to our end of the year list, I just felt like I was being a little bit unfair to us, to books, to the conversation, <laughs> to only do it in December. Mm-hmm. Well, also, I feel like I always have to make cuts because I, I like we have a limited
1: number that we can do at the end of the year. So there's always like three or four that I'm like, oh, I wish I had talked about that one or. I had a lot to say about them, but I couldn't because we didn't have time. So I do really like this mid-year thing. So. Mm-hmm. And I suggest that we don't bring them back for December. All new books for December? Well, and like at least not the ones that we've talked about. Like, I'm cutting books for this episode. I might bring those back for December. But honestly,
0: I mean, we all read minimum like 50 books a year. Minimum. Mm-hmm. So maybe a compromise would be that for the end-of-the-year episode, we only... Talk about in the actual conversation things that we haven't talked about before, Mm right? But maybe we submit this list off. Yeah, this is my actual final list, Mm -hmm. and it might include something we're talking about today or something. You know, I do these episodes throughout, sometimes solo or whatever books that I've talked about earlier. But I agree, I don't want it to be repetitive. That's not fun.
1: Plus, there's just between and again between the three of us, minimum 150 books.
0: Yeah, I know it's hard to (laughs) narrow it. It It's a lot. It Although is. we
2: have a tendency to circle, at least, there is a Venn diagram in There's there. There's a crossover. There's yeah. some level of
0: crossover.
1: I feel like this year more so than ever, actually. Just with all the ones that we named, we never have this much crossover.
0: I do feel like this yeah. is a wildly, I don't want to say popular, I'm not sure what the word is. This has been a great publishing year. Yeah. hmm So far, and we're only halfway through, there's been a lot of books that I've liked that people are talking about. You know, there's been a lot of buzzworthy books. There always are, I guess, but it just seems like a lot this year, Mm -hmm. more than usual. I do think that we are catching up with... The lag that we felt in the pandemic. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh yeah. There were there was at least one, probably I feel like two years we were like, was this
0: a great publishing year? It didn't feel like one. It feels like this is gonna be excellent. So books coming out in 2023 were likely written in the pandemic. Yeah. So when people were home mm-hmm. and you know, feeling creative or feeling despondent. Who knows? (laughs) But I feel like we are getting a crop of books in 2023 that were written, you know, end of 2020, Mm -hmm. throughout 2021, maybe. These books are now coming out, which we're seeing. Actually, we're seeing in some of our fiction more that the pandemic will be a a backdrop or will be something that's mentioned or whatever, which is very interesting to watch, like sort of historically. Mm -hmm. This is the first event in my lifetime where I've noticed that. Now, of course, I was uh, 22 years old when September 11th happened, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that that also crept into fiction two years later type mm-hmm. of thing. But I wasn't clocking it because I was in my early 20s still and was mm-hmm. not paying attention in this particular way. So this is the first sort of major life thing that I am now seeing show mm-hmm. up in the books we read. Mm-hmm. And that's been like sort of interesting to watch because the pandemic was such a historic event. That's gonna now be in books for decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But I don't actually think with 9 11 that it was the same way. I mean, I think it was, 9 11 was just like so shocking. I think people didn't know how to address it because the first book I remember that was about 9 11 was extremely loud and incredibly close. Yeah. I don't remember anything before that. And I was reading a lot. But I think it was a different thing.
0: And also the fact that the pandemic was like a global event. That's right. 9-11 did not affect everyone in the same way. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a
1: challenge to write about something like that, that we hadn't ever experienced on our soil, like at that level. So I I think it was a harder thing to incorporate as quickly.
0: Also, Mm -hmm. there are parts of the country and certainly parts of the globe that could have somewhat ignored 9-11 altogether. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't have affected their life in the same way. I can't think of anyone, even even as regions treated the pandemic differently and all of those things, everyone was affected by mm-hmm. the pandemic. Yeah. And so it's just so encompassing. Of course, it's going to show up in our fiction and nonfiction and in everything. That's what I mean. Like, we're just not catching up to the lag of art takes a year plus to come mm-hmm. out, unless it's Internet-based. And this is what we're now experiencing, I feel like.
2: Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how, because we're still dealing with the emotional, like immediate emotional effects of the pandemic, it's going to be really interesting to see how novels written about this time that are out now differ from things made in 10 or 15 or 20 years about now. Mm. And the way that people will come to, like the larger narratives that people take away. Yeah. Because if you think about, like, if you think about television, which deals with things so immediately compared to novels, because books take so long to put out. If you think about kind of the TV shows that came out immediately after 9-11, if you're thinking of, like, 24, or The Sopranos definitely, like, dealt with it in a particular way. If you think about that, you know, sl- section of television that came out compared to now how we reference that time, even though it hasn't—it's been, you know, 20 years. It hasn't been that long. It's going to be interesting to see how it's the same way for the pandemic.
0: Well, it's— adults right now are writing about the pandemic but eventually in 10 plus years we're going to have the children of the pandemic right. mm-hmm. writing about the pandemic and they are going to have a totally different take on
2: it. Absolutely and they experience the effects very very differently. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, I'm excited for
1: that.
0: That's going to make for some good reading.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's true!
0: Yeah. Steph, you didn't really say what your reading life is like in general right now. Do you want to share that? Yeah, so I've been actually reading a ton this year so
2: far. It's funny, I feel like in quantity I've had a really good reading year. I think in quality it's been a little more mixed. I've mm-hmm. had a larger proportion of books that I was like, mm, I don't know if I'm digging this. I will say as I mentioned like I've definitely trended towards reading lighter stuff in the last like 3 or 4 months just because my anxiety level has been higher and there's been just like lots of things going on, the least of which is the writer strike, which is happening in our industry right now, and lots of kind of upheaval in our industry. So I've been just, like, baseline, slightly higher anxiety level. So I've tended towards reading slightly lighter stuff. But specifically, there were a couple of, like, very violent books that I was like, ooh, this is not, this is not happening right now. But overall, I actually, I made myself a goal at the beginning of the year that because I read so much for work, I was like, I need to prioritize reading for my personal enjoyment. So I've actually been reading a lot more because I've been trying to only read personal enjoyment books before bed. Mm. And it's actually been really lovely. Like, I forgot how much I miss reading for no particular reason other than
0: my own personal enjoyment. So, yeah, I've actually been doing fine. (laughs) Okay, so let's share some of our favorites of the year so far. I'm going to throw out a few of my favorites of the year so far that I've already talked about on the show, but just to get a reaction. Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> okay. If y'all have read them or not, some favorites that I have already talked about and 10 Things to Tell You is We All Want Impossible Things by Katherine Newman. Have y'all read that one? Mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's a fiction novel. I read it in January. I loved it. It's quirky. It has sort of an unlikable narrator, which I was kind of feeling this tone in a way. And it is about a woman who her best friend has entered hospice. Mm. And you would not think that that would make for a humorous book because it's obviously like dark humor. But I just thought it was really well done and a good story. It's fiction, but it felt like this literally could have been a memoir. That's That's what it read like. I just really liked it. Okay, the other book that I talked about, actually talked about this on a Favorite Things episode, my most recent Favorite Things episode, episode 171, is my favorite nonfiction of the year so far, besides my own.
2: <laughs> Which is the best that's she been published did this it.
1: year. She said it, ladies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so besides the Life Council, my favorite nonfiction of the year so far is The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control by Katherine Morgan Schaffler. This is a self-help book about perfectionists, (laughs) but do not be scared by the word perfectionist if you don't identify with that word, if you don't feel like you're type A or anything like that. This book is so good in the same way that when we first read Brene Brown and we felt like, I don't identify with the word shame. I don't feel like I have a lot of shame in my life or whatever because I don't have trauma in my childhood or something like that. And then you read the way that Brene Brown talks about shame and you're like, Oh, yeah, yeah. I have all the shame. <laughs> <You know? laughs> This is how I felt about this book of like, even if you don't identify as a perfectionist per se, when you're reading, it, you're like, oh, no, we all have these tendencies to want to please, to want to be seen a certain way. And this can fall under this very wide umbrella of perfectionism. And for me, this was just validating and affirming and all of those words of like, yes, I do this spin cycle in my brain. And I just needed to hear someone talk about it, kind of like Susan Kane's book, Quiet, which is like the power of introversion, Mm -hmm. it maybe didn't break ground for you if you were an introvert, but you felt like cheering that someone was finally giving some power to introverts. Mm -hmm. This is what I felt about The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control, where I was like, okay, this is finally not trying to teach me how to not be a perfectionist, this is trying to teach me how to harness that I care about this thing and make it valuable. Like it sort of just reframes the way that we talk to ourselves sometimes or talk about ourselves or worry about a perception or whatever. So that's been my favorite nonfiction book. Again, I talked about that on my favorite things episode. And then one of my other favorite books of the year so far, and I'm just unapologetic about it, you guys Spare by Prince Harry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. I don't care if you're judging me. I'm not in the slightest.
2: Goodness. I have also read it.
0: Gracious. Are we allowed to say that Yasmeen went to school with Meghan Markle here yes. in Los Angeles? There we go. We said it. We are.
1: <laughs> More words, please. Lots of people went to school with Meghan Markle. You know, I I can't really say anything because she was a little girl when I knew her. She was a little girl. She was, she was considerably younger than I am, and she was little. But it's been fun to watch this happen, you know, and be like, oh, I remember when you were 12. Um, Did you read Spare? You know, I started it. I just don't care enough. I mean, like, I'm glad that they're happy. Do your thing. You know, live in Santa Barbara. Have your happy life. I just don't care. I don't really care about the royals. I don't care about the whole thing. Um, I mean, I will say that, like... I don't know why anyone was surprised that the royal family was a little bit racist. So, but if you listen to the Bias series, you know how I feel about some of these things. But yeah, no, it just wasn't, it didn't do it for me. I was not interested. Though, I did read an amazing article by his ghostwriter in The New
2: Yorker. Oh, yeah. He's got a great ghostwriter. I mean, his book, The Tender Bar, is really beautiful and heartfelt. J.D. Moringer, I believe. I mean, it's, the fact that you plucked
0: that from the thin air, who knows? <laughs> what can I say? But he read The Tender Bar, which was a movie. I oh. listened to Spare by oh, Prince Harry. Oh, so did he read it? He read it. Okay. Oh, he narrates it himself. Okay, so that adds to the appeal. Fair. <laughs> I'm not a royal watcher. I don't care that much about royals. I haven't cared about the scandal that has happened in the last few years, with them. I don't feel passionately about any of it. I find it interesting when people do feel very passionately mm-hmm. about her or him or leaving the royal family, or all these things. I, like, love to hear people in my real life, like, when it comes up at a dinner party and people feel, like, have their big feelings about it. But (laughs) I did not. I listened to it because it was a huge book. Everyone was talking about it. I literally bought it on Audible and just was like, I'm just going to start it and sort of see. I felt like it was wildly listenable. I loved it. I totally binged it. I realized that I, not related to, that's not the right word, but... Because I'm not a royal watcher, I didn't think I would even know some of the things he was talking about or whatever. But because I'm a human that lives in the world, of course, I remember Princess Diana dying and, you know, big like sort of world events, I guess, that he references throughout his own personal story. And so that made it compelling also to sort of think not just about Prince Harry and the royal family, but sort of like how this was functioning in a broader global sense. So there were things about it I really liked. I also just liked his personal story. I Mm -hmm. liked him telling it on Audible. Mm -hmm. I liked the emotion that he brought to it. You know, he gets close to tears at times. I did not find that to be fake or anything. Like, I I thought it was interesting. Well, it's genuinely sad.
1: It really is. Mm -hmm. Like... Just the whole construct of the monarchy and the, we have a duty and we were born into this. It's just, it's crazy. It's crazy talk. I will say, I remember when Megan did an interview when they were in Africa and the reporter asked her how she was and she said, you know, I'm just surviving but not thriving. That broke my heart because I knew in that moment that she was being real. She's not that great of an actress (laughs) but like you know what i mean like it was it was real it wasn't like campy it wasn't and she's also not that type of person she'll put spin on stuff and whatever but she's also not like gonna fake that moment Mm -hmm. it wasn't contrived that that was that was the little girl that i remember and you could see it in her face so i did feel bad when i when i saw that it did break my heart a little bit of like oh wow you're you have all this privilege. You have all these things and you're clearly suffering, you know. And so then I felt bad for Harry too. Like, you know, he was a little boy when his mom died. and
0: mm-hmm, uh,
1: mm-hmm. So that part is really sad. And to, to see it repeating, I'm sure is just like doing like, you know, a massive mind. F- Sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that's been one of my favorite reads of the year so far. It's a little bit, I don't want to say outside of my wheelhouse. I love a memoir and I even like a celebrity memoir. But because I wasn't, super dialed into this particular celebrity maybe that's why i found it so fascinating Mm -hmm. the criticisms of it and of his tone and of his angle are from people who have been paying a lot more attention Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) yeah sure so if you haven't been and you're just like curious about the buzz i found it to be a wonderful listen (laughs) (laughs) i kind of wish i had listened to it so i read it and
2: I enjoyed it for, I think, a lot of the same reasons you do. And I thought it was well-written. I was worried it wouldn't be. He's got a great ghostwriter. Props to him. He's not been shy about the fact that he had a ghostwriter. So I've read a bunch of celebrity memoirs over the years. I mean, I know we all love Jeanette McCurdy's mm-hmm. in, the, yes. in December, which was so well done. And I thought this one, like, it totally holds its own as a book. There were a few things where I was like, "Oh, buddy, I didn't need to know that about you."
0: Definitely <laughs> some like a little oversharing, but like if he's willing to share it,
2: I won't stop you.
0: <laughs> I think with celebrity memoirs or high profile memoirs, the less you know, the better. You're gonna have more criticisms or beef with the way that it's told if you know something to the contrary. Mm-hmm. If you don't, and you can just listen to it and take it for what it's worth mm-hmm. from that person. It's enjoyable. Same with Jeanette McCurdy. I was very unfamiliar with her shows, with Mm -hmm. her work, who she was for the same reason. I read it as it was like the book of last year and continues to be this year. And I have no reason to like quibble with the way she is telling the story. Mm -hmm. I just am like, great. That was fascinating. (laughs) I got to see this little slice of that Life And I don't feel like I need to, like, hunt down the inconsistencies or whatever. Mm -hmm.
2: It's easier to take it at face value if you don't go into it with a bunch of either correct or just, like, preconceptions. Yeah.
0: So I felt the same about Prince Harry. Obviously, he's on such a bigger scale that I can see why people had all kinds of things that they wanted to refute about his telling of it. But if you don't feel that kind of attachment to that story or him or his family or the monarchy, I just thought it was a great listen. Mm -hmm. But
1: that also just happens with memoir, right? Like, I mean, memory is... It's fallible. Also,
2: it's your interpretation of the events that happened to you. Yeah. That is not necessarily the only interpretation of events as they happen. Yes.
0: But we don't talk about that with other memoirs of people who aren't high-profile figures where Mm -hmm. their counterparts might have a different view of it. Like, Well, but people in their lives do. Mm-hmm. But like so, Tara Westover's educated every yeah, book because she was an unknown before that book. All we really have is the way that she's telling it. Mm-hmm. You know, her family mm-hmm. refutes some of the things that she says. I don't care. I don't want to hear from her family. Like, I read the book and I liked it. Right. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it is sort of a different conversation and there's not all this evidence to the contrary. There's not a different perspective. Maybe a little bit. Maybe mm-hmm. if you were portrayed in an unfair way, maybe you could write a blog post about that or something. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same thing as, like, the freaking royal family. Like, mm-hmm. they're going to have a different global narrative. Mm-hmm. That everyone's going to hear. Yeah. yeah. I get what you're saying. Which is different than, like... Again, Educated is a good example. Something like The Glass Castle, which we all loved. S- similar to Educated in some ways of mm-hmm. like, this was an unknown person who wrote something very well. Like the writing was mm-hmm. beyond, above average. But you she wasn't
1: unknown. She had already published. She was an author when she wrote that.
0: But her family is unknown. Her I story see. is mm-hmm. unknown. There's not like a a public refuting of the way that she told it. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. That's just different than a celebrity memoir where you can have a gajillion people come forward and say, this isn't exactly true or Uh whatever. So when we're interacting with memoir, it's all the same idea of like, this is just their experience Uh may or may not be exactly factual, but in some cases, the record stands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jeanette Wall's record stands. Yeah. Yeah. With Prince Harry, if you just Google it, like a quadrillion things come up about what he was wrong about. that's an inconsistency on page 67. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's just sort of interesting to me. Okay. So those were just the few that I've already talked about that I I wanted to hear your reactions to. But now I want to hear what y'all have been reading and loving this year, 2023. Steph, why don't you go first? Tell me the first book that you want to share with us that you have loved so far.
2: So, the first book is Mame by Jessica George. Mm-hmm. Did you read this one?
0: I did not, but isn't it a... Was it a read with Jenna pick? It was. Yeah. It was a
2: read with Jenna pick. I gotta say, I generally speaking think she has great taste. Me too. She is my favorite celebrity book club. Me too. I love her taste, and actually that's one of the reasons I picked it up, because I just read it entirely for fun, and I saw that it was a read with Jenna pick, and I was like, oh, I almost always like her picks. So it is about a 25-year-old woman named Maddie who's living in London. She is the daughter of Ghanaian immigrants, and she still lives at home. She's working as an assistant. And the reason she still lives at home is the fact that her family has a fairly unusual situation. Her mother is currently living in Ghana, although her parents are both married. Her brother is off kind of living his own life. And unbeknownst to all of her friends and her colleagues, she is living as the caretaker to her father who has very severe Parkinson's. And so she's living this very specific life. You know, everything is about going home and taking care of him and all of this. Her mother, who has kind of decamped to Ghana off and on since she was, like, I think, 13, calls her and says, I'm coming back. I am going to move back into the house because her parents are still married. You should move out. Go live your life. And so at 25, she's faced with, for the very first time, basically, with living an independent life without the responsibilities of being a caretaker. And when something really tragic happens... It throws all of the things she's been trying to build in her life kind of into stark relief. And she has to deal with what is going on emotionally. She has started dating. She's moved out. And it's a really kind of beautiful contemplation on grief, Hmm. but also on what it is to be a caretaker. Because this is a woman who is so young and in so many ways has not experienced adult life she has never really been independent she's never gotten to date she's never gotten to do all of these things that everybody else her age has gotten to do but because of her role as a character a caretaker she was also like parentified really early so she's in this weird kind of stunted life where she was an adult at 13 but at 25 still isn't really an adult and I found the kind of the duality really beautiful and I found it really moving. I mean, it is quite a sad book in a lot of ways. My guess is it's largely based or at least inspired by this writer's real life. There's a couple of things in the acknowledgments that make me think that. But she writes really beautifully about what it is to kind of have to move beyond this role and how you need to kind of seize your own life and kind of find the joy. I found it really moving. I was really impressed. I think it's a debut novel.
0: I read a lot of the Read with Jenna books because I also love her picks and I steered away from this one. I think because I got the impression it was going to be sad.
2: I mean it is. It really is. Oh, it's not the only feeling and I think it does feel ultimately hopeful, but it is kind of a sad I mean it is kind of a sad book. A lot of it is about grief. Yeah, it's melancholy. I really melancholy. enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. I thought it was very well written, and it made me feel things like I like. Yeah, this doesn't feel like your kind of book, Yasmin. For some reason, why? Because it was a Jenna pick.
2: (laughs) Maybe. No, I I, think of her as your go-to book
1: club. No, you know, but I do. I think, I think her picks are pretty cool. I and I think that she's being really intentional. With the author, she chooses to bring to her audience, and mm-hmm. I I have respect for that. I think she's been really smart about it, and I appreciate that. No, I thought it was a very good book. It's because I read like nonfiction, heavy weird stuff. Is that
0: yes? Yeah, it feels a little popular for you. I, I'm telling you, I was sad. I got a lot of popular books on my list. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a sad start to the year, friends. Steph, say the name and the author of that one again. So the book is called Mame.
2: It's M A A M E, and it's by Jessica George.
0: Okay, I will also say that maybe one of the reasons I steered clear of it, y'all just judge. I don't care. If I cannot pronounce it, I stay away. It's like Zhili. Zhili. <laughs> Remember that movie? <laughs> yes. With ben Affleck Abs- and J Lo. J Lo, the
2: Benefer 1.0. I will say in this book, on like page two, there is an explanation of how to pronounce the title. I am hoping I did it correctly. <laughs> I did admittedly look up a YouTube video of her pronouncing it, but they literally include the parenthetical of like, this is how it's pronounced because they clearly want you to do it correctly. It is a Ghanaian word. so.
1: But you felt that way about American, Ameri- Americana? Yeah, no, you didn't read the book because you thought it was going to be, like, something that it wasn't because of the title.
0: Right. It wasn't that I couldn't pronounce that word. It was because I thought it was going to be anti-American
1: mm-hmm. mm. or
0: something. But that's what I mean. I mean, sometimes you you have in the
1: past made choices that <laughs> are kind of arbitrary. of like, this word means this, so I'm not going to read it. So I think it's, I, I just think it's funny because then you end up
0: really liking them. This I loved America. I know. And mm-hmm. I feel like that would be actually the same with this book. Maybe so. I unashamedly judge a book by its cover. Oh, for oh I do, too. 100% you do. <laughs> and its title, yeah. but also its cover. If for it has me, an ugly cover, it's not for me. But this for me, it's cover art. A pretty cover. It covered. has a beautiful
2: cover. For me, it's cover art where I'm like, either I know it's going to be like too fluffy, chick rom-com for me based on the cover alone, Or there are certain, like, aesthetic choices where I'm like, "Mm, I don't know if that one's for me. Like, the latest, this sounds terrible because I've heard the book's amazing. The latest Barbara Kingsolver book, I saw the cover and I was like... Oh, I don't know. Are you talking about Demon Copperhead? Yeah, I read the... (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I read the cover and I was like, I'm not in the mental space for this. I will love it eventually when I read it. But I read the cover and I was like, oh, this is going to be depressing. This is going to be a slog. Um, Am I wrong?
1: Stop. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's Demon Copperhead. Listeners, I wish you could see the look on
2: Laura Tremaine's face. Absolute shame in me. I'm sorry. (laughs) I know. I've heard it's amazing. Why, I know I need to read it. This is why we need to video these. I just need to get the <laughs> ebook and then avoid the cover. But I read, I looked at the cover and I was like, oh, this is going to be a slog
0: and I'm going to be sad. First of all, I don't have. A problem with the Demon Copperhead cover. It wasn't amazing, but it didn't turn me off either. You have to trust Mama King Solver. I know tremendous. she only <laughs> writes
2: bangers. It's
0: They're true. all good. I know. She, I know it's going to be amazing. Hold on. Did we not talk about Demon Copperhead at the end of the year? We before? did. We did, because and was- I
2: still hadn't read it by then. It's on my list of ones that I'm like, I know I need to. I have it on hold at the library. I'll it's, get it eventually.
0: It's super depressing. Yeah, I
2: know. And the, <laughs> the cover shows it. It just, like, it looks like a book that's really depressing. I have not in the last six months been in a place where I want to read something really depressing. <laughs>
0: No, I hear that. I do hear that. But I mean, we make exceptions. I know. <laughs> You'll shame me into it by by the end of the year. Come like the December
2: book one. I'll be like, "This is the greatest book of the year," and you're gonna be like, "Yeah, last year." <laughs> That's
0: exactly how this is gonna go. Down. I know.
2: I could even probably do the Laura Laura impression of like, "Yes, last year." Did you like, not know? <laughs> I can do the hands. Oh, I got the yeah. whole thing covered. Okay. I'm prepared. <laughs>
0: Okay, Yasmin, what is the first book that you want to share with us as your one of your favorites for 2023 so far? So, speaking of celebrity
1: memoirs, one of the ones I really enjoyed was my good friend Matthew Perry. <gasps> Friends, oh. Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. And I'm gonna tell you why. It was very surprising to me how I, you know, I didn't really know much about him. I know that he was like in and out of rehab. I was living in France when Friends was popular, so I wasn't, like, on the thing. But I really loved how honest he was Mm. and how self-reflective he was. And, like, he's not there yet. And I kind of respect writing the memoir when you're not there yet. He's still in the mess. And I had no idea that his situation was
0: as bad as it was. I had multiple friends tell me they put down Matthew Perry's memoir because he sounds so awful in it.
2: I had oh, the, a couple of friends say that, too, that he seems so unlikable. Yeah, and He t- does.
0: He, But that's the thing. This is why I
1: kind of enjoyed it, because he's not trying to sugarcoat. He's not. The whole point of this book is I'm not Chandler Bing, and mm. I never have been. And that's why I'm so messed up. And I think it's like he's just, like, rife with insecurity. He's 50 years old and still trying to get his stuff together. And I respect writing the addiction memoir when you just almost died. Like, it's not like he's years away from it. This is not Mary Carr. This is not, you know, oh, I've reflected on this and this is what I've learned. Mm -hmm. This was, I'm still figuring it out. And consequently, I'm still kind of not a nice guy. And he's aware of his privilege. But who says that he has to be likable? And maybe it's because I have experience with different programs where people talk about this type of thing. But, like, it did feel to me like a very honest sort of AA share or something, like, that you would hear in a 12-step program. And, like, I think—and those people aren't always likable. Like, that's the thing. They're not— And I like the fact that he's kind of a jerk. He is aware of his privilege. He knows he's a jerk. But what I liked about it was just that it was like, it was heartbreaking and honest. And I'll say this. I have seen the effects of insecurity and codependency on men of that age. (laughs) So it was something that I was like, oh, that's what it is.
2: I got to know, if you were not a big Friends fan... And you don't know a lot about him. Why did you... Ch- I, like, I, I kind of get the Prince Harry thing, because, like, everybody was reading it. But, like, why did you decide to read this one of all books? Because I know
1: and love people who have suffered from addiction.
2: Okay, so you saw it as, like, it was the addiction memoir yeah. part that was interesting, as opposed to the celebrity memoir part that yeah, was Yeah,
1: it's not... It's, and it's not just that he was famous. I And I it, I liked the fact that it's messy, Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of celebrities don't do messy memoirs. Yeah, they do the sanitized version. He wasn't trying to make himself seem better than he was. Yeah, he's a jerk. He's a rich, entitled, privileged jerk. But so are a lot of people, and so are a lot of people in AA and uh, who come and share their stories. But, like you know, in program, they talk about like experience, strength, and hope. And I I saw that in here. This was his experience. And this is what he's learning and struggling with. And like, any way you slice it, he's a lucky bastard. He's got so much money. But it's interesting to me that he's so unhappy and hates himself so deeply. Mm -hmm. And he's really honest about that. And the fact that he almost died, which I did not know until I read the book, like it's, it's serious. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's, it's crazy. And again, like I know and love people who have done insane things because of addiction. And I thought that it was, I did think he was actually very self-reflective. And I think if you've never dealt with the reality of addiction or alcoholism, you might just see, oh, he's a jerk and oh, he's just this rich actor boy. And he's, you know, kind of an a-hole. But as someone who has Seen those rooms and sat in them and heard those stories and knows those people, I thought he did a really good job of putting it all out there and knowing
0: that people were going to look at him differently. Mm-hmm. So, this is the exact opposite thing of what I said about the Prince Harry memoir in that you were able to read Matthew Perry's story just for what it was. Mm-hmm. Whereas I didn't even pick it up because I did love friends. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people I know who read it, it changes the experience of watching Friends when you know that one of the main characters, which we knew at the time, we knew he was a dread addict, Mm -hmm. he'd gone to rehab during the time, this was celebrity news, so it wasn't like an enormous revelation that he was on drugs while he was shooting Mm -hmm. the show that was so popular and squeaky clean, pretty much. However, if the show... Means a lot to you. It's really hard to watch him in the season that he got super skinny. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to watch, knowing that he doesn't—and I didn't read it, but you know, you know, maybe doesn't remember filming certain things, or or was in such a different state from Chandler Bing that if you care about Friends, and I do actually, I just wanted to stay away from it. I actually was like, I don't want to know. It doesn't mm. mean I don't respect his story or. or struggles or whatever it was just like i was like i don't want to watch friends and cringe Mm -hmm. but i think i don't know and and this is
1: possibly because i started my life as a child actor that like i understand that you can't control how people feel about you and like everybody wants to love you but that is the part of fame that screws you up and that's what's hard for him is that he knows that he knows that you want him to be something special and wonderful And this thing means so much to you. And that's why he hates himself because he's not fulfilling that for you. And that's a lot to put on a person just because they are on TV. Like they're just people. And most of the people who go into acting, myself included, do it because they want love and people to care about them. So we're already deeply disturbed, messed up people when we go into searching for fame. And that's what was interesting, too, is he was searching for fame. And like he broke down the whole like pilot season and all the stuff. And like he wanted this and then he got it and he wasn't ready for it. That is the interesting Mm -hmm. thing to me.
2: I think that's such a similarity in so many celebrity memoirs, is you don't know the price of fame until you've paid it. So many of them don't know going in what the cost is going to be. It's not so
1: much that as it was that, like, again, understanding addict thinking, he thought that this thing was going to fill this hole. Mm -hmm. And when he realized that it wouldn't, he didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So it just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And... Hearing his story is interesting because it's not, like, it's not like Johnny Depp of like, I got famous and really, really wealthy, and then I became an alcoholic and spent all of this money on wine, and now I'm broke, right? Like, it's not, it's not that. It's like a, he went into it not emotionally ready, mm-hmm. but he was so, like, hurting for attention. And, and the other thing that I like is that he can pinpoint it to this one moment in his life where he felt abandoned. And everything that happened after that was a result of him fearing abandonment. And his parents were kind of weird and, like, didn't love him the way he needed to be loved. It just really spoke to me. I just thought it was—I thought it was really brave because he comes off as such an unlikable jerk. Hmm. And when your career is being the likable funny guy, to put all of this in a book is a big deal.
0: But why? Why? Is it part of his healing?
1: It is absolutely part of his healing because he had read what other people had written. He'd sat in rooms and heard other stories that changed him. And he feels like a lot of people in programs do, that it's our duty to share the story. So people can, you know, because if one person changes their life because of what you did, what you said and what you shared, that's why you're here. And that's why he does it. And he wrote a whole bunch about it at the end of the book of like, the reason I'm sharing this is because someone shared their story with me and it changed my life. And if just one person can think differently about their approach to drug use and abandonment and fears and all that, then I've done something. It's not a vanity memoir at all. And I really think that he's taking the responsibility as a newly sober person, to say it's my duty to share my experience, strength, and hope, which is what
0: they teach you in the program. Well, I'm all for sharing your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I do think this, this might have been mismarketed. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I think it was.
1: It was it was marketed as a celebrity memoir. I'm gonna tell you all the dirt about Friends and I was high yeah. when I was filming. And that's not Friends is like one chapter of the book. It's not the whole book. The whole book is Matthew Perry spiraling and like his turbulent childhood and and he's really self-aware of like, oh I can go back to this moment when I was thirteen and this is what changed my life and this is what changed the perception of myself. And as a parent of a younger person, that was really enlightening to me because he never said anything to his parents about this moment that changed his life Hmm. and set him on this path filled with fear. And so it just also made me think of like being more cognizant of like, what am I saying? What am I doing? What is she going to keep from me? How am I showing up in the world for my daughter so that that doesn't happen? Hmm. Yeah, it was absolutely mismarketed. Of course, you're not going to like it if you want to read about, like, fun stuff that happened on the set of Friends. This is about opioid addiction. This is about failing livers. This is about almost dying, having your
2: stomach explode. This is about not knowing entire swaths of your life. It is interesting that it was marketed, perhaps not so well in comparison to if you think about like the last three big celebrity memoirs have been Matthew Perry's Jeanette McCurdy's and Prince Harry's and they're all very much rooted in trauma mm-hmm. I mean there's really intense emotional reads and not by any means like the light fluffy that we think of as celebrity memoirs which I don't know that is entirely earned but like Jeanette McCurdy's and I think Prince Harry's were both marketed I mean Prince Harry's probably sold itself let's just keep that in mind. <laughs> um, but, like, Jeanette McCurdy's is very much marketed as, like, this is very...
1: But also the title tra- is ta- I'm Happy My Mother is Dead,
2: right? Yeah, or My Died. I'm glad my, I'm glad mom, my mom died. I'm glad my mom died. Sorry. So, yeah. So, I mean, hers is very, like, trauma-forward. Right. And his title is kind of cutesy in a way that maybe doesn't necessarily match the inside of the book, I, too. It may,
1: perhaps, but I don't know. I just...
0: Also, you can't compare the show on Nickelodeon that yeah, Janet McCurdy to was on. Yeah, to, to friends. friends. Yeah. It's like Which the, is like
2: the cultural force of all.
0: It's like the Beatles of T V
2: shows. Yeah, that's very true.
0: And, and I, so I do have I always want people to be able to tell their story. Share your stuff. This is again my message and I like stand by that. I do think that like there's nothing wrong with being attached to a character on a show. Mm-hmm. People who are attached to Chandler Bing and what they brought to their life you know, what they were doing when they watched it. Like there are things that I, there's something like wrong with that or shallow about that. Or I guess to me, it does such a disservice to a fandom to market a book as you're going to get behind-the-scenes friends info mm-hmm. and then just, like, destroy people with well, <laughs> the stomach pumping. My question, <laughs> though, is was it marketed
1: that way or did people just want it to be that way? Because I think people just wanted it to be that. And that's his whole point, is that, like, everybody wants something from him. Nobody wants him to just be him. Mm-hmm. And even in his telling of a story, we're like, you're not telling it right. Like, that's what was so powerful to me. It was it's a big risk that he took. He's probably never going to work again. And but, but he
0: was, was he before? Exactly. He was. Come was on. He, he has
2: not worked in a long time. He doesn't I mean, need to. He doesn't he, need he, doesn't, need he doesn't need to. I mean maybe he, he is, hasn't worked in a long time. He's functionally retired. I mean But
1: it's like but also he had a colostomy bag for like a year. I mean fair. like it's crazy. Like I feel like we we want so much from famous people. Mhm. And we want them to fulfill all these things for us. And we never think about the fact that they are people
0: mm-hmm. who
1: have a hole in their selves to fill as well. And I think that's all it is. It's like, I was very impressed with how honest he was. And, and again, i been around this game for a really long time. I get it. The same way that I related to Jeanette McCurdy's mm-hmm. because I've I've experienced some of those things myself. And if you are part of any sort of twelve-step community in Los Angeles, you have seen famous people talk about their sh- and He did it in a just really, really honest way that whatever, he's still, he's 50 and he has killed his career. Like, there's no coming back from this. And he did it in service of helping other addicts. And I have mad respect for that. And I thought, I did, I did think it was really enlightening. Hmm. Um, And it's not like I didn't love Friends. Like, let's not cast me as this person (laughs) who didn't love Friends. But, like, I was in France when it happened. So I didn't know Chandler Bing's voice for six years. I knew the French guy who dubbed it. Um, So, (laughs) you know, it's maybe because of that, I don't have that same attachment to him. But I, I was really impressed with how honest he was and how, like, kind of like... With John Mulaney, is that his name? Mulaney. 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 With his recent stand-up, like Baby J, yeah, yeah, he ends at the end where he's like, "This is all the terrible stuff I did, and this is what I'm willing to tell you." Mm -hmm. And there's a whole bunch that I'm not telling you. And I thought that Matthew Perry told all that stuff, Mm -hmm. which again can be really, really, really powerful for addicts, alcoholics, and people who are struggling. To understand that, like, whoa, this guy has everything that I thought that I needed, and he still screwed it up because he didn't like himself. Like, that's the message of the book. Mm. And that's really powerful. What's the title of that book? <laughs> friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. Mm. My turn. <laughs> and the takeaway is, me doesn't like friends.
2: <laughs> Hot take of the day. <laughs>
0: Okay, so I'm going to talk about some bestsellers that have come out in 2023 because I've read a lot of them, which I can't seem to get out of this desire to want to know the books that everyone else is reading. So I'm going to talk about those. I do just want to mention, because it really matters to me, that two of my favorite books of the year that I've read were not published this year. So for the Secret Stuff Book Club in January, we read Beloved by Toni Morrison never in my life have I read such a book. What? It is a life-changing book. I know. I used to teach it every year. I am embarrassed that I haven't read this book before. Actually, the second book that I'm going to talk about, I'm also embarrassed that I hadn't read before. I had not read Beloved because it seemed hard. Mm -hmm. It's not super long, but it just seemed like hard material. And For Secret Stuff Book Club in the winter, we do read classics for this very reason. We read books that we've always meant to get to, but never quite did. And so, if you're in a book club that kind of pushes you to do it, you do it. And so, I purposely chose this one for myself because I wanted to read it. But I kind of was, I don't want to say ambivalent about it, but I just was like, this is like going to be like high school English class or something. I did (laughs) not. (gasps) (laughs)
1: Yasmin. Why do you say that with such disdain? I I was a high school English teacher, people, for many years. Well, I was just approaching it like a chore. Yeah. You know, like, I
0: I want to have read this book. I'm going to read it. I'm going to lead a discussion about it. I read this book, and I was like, holy absolute Moses. (laughs) Nobody writes like this. There's been nothing ever written like this. Why don't we talk about that? We do. Everybody talks about that. (laughs) I'm the only one who was like, you guys, why didn't anybody tell me? Even though literally everybody tells you. Mm-hmm. So if you have slept on this book, you need to read it. It's so good. I love it so much. It is so disturbing. So prepare yourself that it is dark and disturbing. There's some graphic chapters. We had a very, I don't want to say contentious book club meeting about it, but we didn't all agree with some things about it. It's hard to talk about Beloved without any spoilers, but it is absolutely incredible. One of the top books of my life. So I could not not mention it. So I loved
1: it. I'm so happy and jealous that you had that experience of reading it for the first time.
0: Well, I was also just like, what in the world? I know. (laughs) Like, it is really amazing and intense and dark and sad and awful. But also, your your type of book. Uh-huh. I know. Yeah. This is so
1: deeply your vibe. It's I mean, totally. She's going to get all into, like, Southern Gothic novels now. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: I couldn't believe it. I really was expecting something different from it. Yeah. Which, another thing that I've really noticed about my reading life, like, the books that stand out for me, if you look back over these episodes of the last few years, the books that stand out for me are books that surprised me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That I thought they were going to be something else, and they were this. That I had low expectations, and they blew them out of the water. Mm -hmm. You know, anything like that, I realize, and you can't always, like, chase the element of surprise. But for myself, a pattern is when a book takes me by surprise. There's a plot twist. And and I don't like always, like, crazy plot twists as a device. That's not always effective for me. But, like, there is a twist that I didn't see coming. I didn't, you know, when you read a lot, and listeners to the show read a lot, we all read a lot, like you kind of learn to spot certain mm-hmm. foreshadowing or whatever, whatever. And so when a book defies that or surprises me anyway, that really elevates it to me. And Beloved, as even though it's considered a classic by literally everyone, <laughs> I put classics in a certain box mm-hmm. that they aren't really going to surprise you. Like, I read Little Women with Secret Stuff Book Club last year, and it didn't surprise me in its plot But it surprised me that I liked it more than I thought I would. And Mm -hmm. so that was, you know, sort of something to notice. Beloved surprised me in literally every single way. Like, Mm -hmm. I was like, I can't believe that we aren't just talking about this every day. (laughs) (laughs) Why is there not more shows about this? (laughs) Like... It's so good. It's just on a different level. Oh,
1: I'm so jealous that you had that experience. I, it's it's such a beautiful book. It's just it's one of my favorites. It's so beautiful. Why do they
0: teach it in high school? I would not
1: have understood it in high school. I taught it in high school. They don't teach it in high school. I was
2: gonna say it wasn't. I didn't read it in high school. I read it in well, college, I, I, think. I taught
1: at a predominantly black school, and I wanted to make sure that we were reflecting the population. And I didn't teach it with every English class. I didn't teach it in ninth grade. I taught it with my AP literature students who needed to know it because it was going to be on the test. So like for the AP classes, they're expecting a level of knowledge about books. And I wanted to expose them to
0: that. It's interesting because some of the things that we read when we're young, we aren't quite ready for. We don't totally Mm -hmm. understand them. We just don't have the life experience or the maturity. Like it's literally developmental. And then in adulthood, most people, and I'm putting myself in this category because I'm 43 years old and hadn't read this book yet. In adulthood, most people don't want to read things that are hard. We don't Mm want to return to these type of books when we don't have to read them. And so it's like lost on the young in some way. But I would also argue that
1: it's hard and inaccessible and you don't like it because you have a bad teacher. It didn't have to be hard and inaccessible and a struggle. And I didn't think it was with my kids. I think that I was very thoughtful about how I taught it and what we took from it and what we analyzed. And, like, it wasn't the first book they started with, right? It was going to be like, mm-hmm. hi, welcome to senior year. Here's Beloved. Like, you know, I had taught them how to critically read. I had taught them how to recognize different tropes and allusions. And and then also paired with their history class, it made a lot of sense
0: mm-hmm. for
1: the themes that were they were, you know, finding and digging out from Beloved. But I think that happens with a lot of literature, is that it's just taught the wrong way, and it makes it inaccessible because you don't have a teacher that can bring it to life for you.
0: Well, and pairing it with history is actually really key. Some of the books that I've read in the last few years, had I not been paying a lot of attention to these conversations around race, Mm -hmm. they would have hit different when I was 17 if I didn't pair it with history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so but now that I have it really makes a difference. Right. So anyway, that is a book I read in January, loved it obviously. <laughs> Was not published anytime recently. <laughs> <laughs> the other book that I read This year, that's one of my favorites so far that was published in 2021. I'm just going to mention it briefly because I do want to talk about 2023 books. But I bought on Kindle sale. And for the life of me, I cannot remember if somebody recommended this. I don't even know why I bought it. I bought The Sentence by Louise Erdrich. Mm. Oh, yeah. That was great. Okay, so listen, y'all. This book came out in 2021. I love her. I did not buy it when it came out, even though I distinctly remember that I had a few listeners to the show or followers on social media who DM'd me that I should read this book. Mm-hmm. They were like, this is right up your alley. You're going to love this book. I had gotten it confused with another popular book at the time that had a similar cover, not a literary fiction book, a different category than literary fiction. Oh, I want to know what book it was. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and I had gotten them confused because their covers... I actually looked back at it. Their cover's are not exactly similar, but they have, like, a color pattern, sort of, like a color scheme, and it was sort of an abstract, you know, whatever, geometric kind of cover. And I had gotten it confused, did not understand why people were recommending it to me. I had not read Louise Erdrich before. I feel dumb saying this, because I pride myself as a reader, you guys. She's won the frickin' Pulitzer. Mm Yeah. And I was literally like, why are people recommending this weird (laughs) book to me? (laughs) Ignored it completely in 2021. For some bizarre reason, bought it on Kindle sale. I don't know why. And started it. And it is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's totally your type of book. I yes. Know. To say that it's about a haunted bookstore, which is sort of just the one tagline of it, like it's about a haunted bookstore, it doesn't even do this book justice. It is about indigenous people. It is about. The Murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. It is about finding your identity, being a step-parent, the pandemic. There's so many book recommendations within the book because Mm -hmm. it is about a haunted Mm -hmm. bookstore. So she's constantly referencing other authors and, and books and things that I loved. I took lots of notes. It's amazing, this book. And I'm just absolutely embarrassed that I hadn't read Louise Erdrich before. I did immediately go buy her Pulitzer Prize winner the night watchman i haven't gotten to it yet but i am traveling to minneapolis this summer and so i'm hoping to get to visit her actual bookstore that she owns oh, oh, nice. and i just feel like dumb that i hadn't read her before and that i had mixed her up with a, a different author or mixed this book up with a different book and had dismissed it in a very judgy and snobby way i'm going to be honest with you And I have made up for it, though. This is an amazing book that's one of my favorites of the year.
1: I think we have all learned you can't judge a book by its (laughs) (laughs) cover. I judge books by their covers. But look the mess that it's got you in. I know. Well, that's true. <laughs> I'm just saying. And I got
2: taken to task for Demon Copperhead. So, <laughs> apparently we're leaving this table no longer doing that. Why are you not seeing this? It's- this is
0: the lesson of this show, ladies. <laughs> Covers matter. Like, actually, when I talk to fellow authors, because sometimes I do hear in my DMs or emails or whatever, people who want a book deal or have just gotten a book deal or whatever. And I, I do say, I know I'm supposed to give you some, like, deep insight. Let me tell you what matters here. Your cover. Yeah.
1: Yes. No, I, I mean, I agree. I get it. But I also think it's important as we grow as readers to know that about ourselves and to say, like, okay, I, maybe I need to give this another chance. And and you do it. You do it all the time where you reflect on, like, oh, I shouldn't be thinking of classic books this way. I shouldn't, you know. So I just I just think that, you know, sometimes they're really beautiful stories just hidden in
0: places we didn't always expect. And good books can get lost because their cover or their title is subpar, and mediocre books uh-huh. can be elevated because they have a really clever, funny, punny title or a great cover yeah, that uh-huh. is eye-catching, looks great on the bookshelf, looks great in Bookstagram. That book is flat mediocre,
1: but it's also <laughs> it's also just what happens in the publishing industry.
2: Yeah. It, it's well, you like, have to get people's attention somehow.
1: Well, but I mean, just in terms of who we push and who we don't push sure. and what, who we want on shows and what we want our books to look like, like there's inherent, you know, racism and misogyny in that process. It's not the most evolved of industries. So I think it's important to take ourselves to task for that of like, what am I paying attention to and why?
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, what am I, what am I missing? What am I not paying attention to?
0: Yeah, it's true. Um, And a lot of authors, which I learned this after the fact because I didn't fully comprehend this— and part of this is because I'm married to a director who has like final cut in all of his projects. Mm -hmm. And so I knew when I was negotiating a book contract to ask for certain things. Now, I did not have final book cover approval for my books, but I had collaboration language in there Mm. on my cover. And a lot of authors, especially first time authors get absolutely zero say in their cover, Mm -hmm. zero say in their cover. And so if it tanks, it tanks. And then if you it, don't get another one. Yeah, I they're not going to market the second one. Yeah. You know? So it is, you know, there's a lot of layers here, including a layer of privilege that matters. I will say I designed the Life Council cover. I'm just throwing it out there. I also would have never in thousand million years picked a polka dot cover for my first book because I wanted to be taken seriously. But in a time of Instagram, that cute share stuff cover looks great. Yeah. It on does. social media. And it made and a wonderful cake. Thank you. <laughs> That's exactly right. Will, it is a great cake design. <laughs> I will link to the photos of Stephanie's cake <laughs> versions of both of my books because they are spectacular. Thank you. Um, so I spent all those minutes talking about the books I wasn't going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You
2: did. <laughs> As one does. <laughs> okay. Remember how this was going to be shorter so that our December one wasn't 14 hours long?
0: You guys, we are who we are. They I'd, love it. It's Give the true. people what they want. Um, okay, the book that I am going to talk about isn't a five-star book for me, but it stuck with me, and I want to talk about it, and I haven't talked about it yet, and I am curious if y'all read it. It is a big book. I have lots of words. It's I Have Some Questions for You by Rebecca Mackay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have y'all both read it? Yes. yes. <gasps> oh! This almost <laughs> never happens. It really doesn't. Okay, so I am a huge fan of Rebecca Mackay's book, The Great Believers. It's Mm -hmm. one of my top 10 of the last five-ish years or whatever. Like, I absolutely love that book. The Great Believers is a fantastic book, which made her newest book, I Have Some Questions for You, an automatic pre-order for me. Mm -hmm. Like, I pre-ordered it as soon as I heard about it. I follow her on Twitter, also really love her there. So, like, I'm a Rebecca Mackay fan. This book is about a podcaster Mm -hmm. (laughs) who returns to her alma mater, a boarding school, high school, to chase down a true crime story, because that's what podcasters do, (laughs) of a murder of her roommate and classmate from when she was in high school, that she's sort of returning to this to, to solve this crime. It is like a very modern Culturally relevant story. Now, I said on, I think, Twitter, maybe I said this on Instagram, that I found the main character of this book to be unlikable, and a lot of people disagreed with me.
2: Hmm. Oh, interesting.
0: Did you find her unlikable? Not in the slightest. <laughs> Not
2: at all. Really? Yeah, I struggle with the main character. I also will say, I struggle with this book a little bit. I'm like you. I'm a diehard fan. I think Rebecca McKay is amazing. I think the premise of the book maybe wasn't for me, partially because I feel like I have either read 17 versions of this book or watched 17 versions of this on TV. I think hers is the best one I've read by far because I like her writing, but I felt like this was a book I'd read before and I kept being like, but I haven't. I mean, I haven't, right? (laughs) I haven't. I, w- I made sure, and I was like, I-, I swear this is new. But there were a couple points where I'm like, this is just like a higher quality version of 17 things I've read before. And I didn't like the main character. You didn't like her, but you didn't find her unlikable? No, I said I found her unlikable. Oh, no, you said you disagreed with her before. Oh, no, I meant I agreed with you completely. I found her completely unlikable. Oh, okay, I thought you were saying you didn't No, I was good. attempting to agree with you. No, I found her completely Unlikable. What about you, Yasmeen?
1: Um, I was just annoyed because she was a bad teacher.
2: <laughs> Fair.
1: No, I mean, I, I didn't love the choices she was making. And no, I don't know that I would have found her unlikable, but I didn't I, it wasn't like I was rooting for her, but I don't, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't feel that. But I do have to say, I hadn't read the Great Believers until you went crazy about it. And then I read it, and so you are absolutely the reason that I pre-ordered this one because. Did you read it in book club? I didn't.
2: Oh, she did. Really did. Hmm. I read the great. We read the great believers in book club. Were you? Did with we? that month?
1: I we maybe definitely didn't finish
2: did. it, but I read it because you were so
1: excited about it. Hmm. I don't know. I sort of liked the conceit of the kids and the podcast and the.
0: Um, you didn't
2: find it at all derivative.
0: I mean, it's popular fiction. Like, it's not, you know. Here's what I liked about it. It didn't feel derivative to me, even though I hear what you're saying, but I actually hadn't read anything that was similar to it, actually. I feel like real life has happened similar to it. I Mm -hmm. feel like I've had these conversations about true crime as entertainment, Mm -hmm. podcasters chasing stories as content. I thought there was a very interesting sort of... B story that was happening that addressed the Me Too movement of, like, believe all women except for the ones that you don't believe, mm-hmm. like, kind of a thing that I thought was a wink slash very realistic take on if you were in a situation where you didn't believe one woman, even though your public stance was believe all women kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I, th- I thought that there were some very interesting things in this book. The book did not... Like, I didn't close it and think, wow, like, I have to give this five stars. I have to tell everyone about it. I did like how it concluded. This is a murder mystery. You do find out who the murderer is by the end. So no spoilers here. But I did think that she did that well. Mm -hmm. But what really mattered to me about the book was I felt like that she did something well that a few authors are attempting right now that I don't think are doing as well, which is there's a lot going on in this book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was... The podcast angle, the true crime angle, the Me Too movement, the, you know, predatory teacher, the racism in finding a scapegoat for the murder, Mm -hmm. the teenage drama and angst and competitiveness of, you know, having this hot popular roommate when you're not the hot popular roommate. Like, there's literally so many themes and tropes and cultural commentary happening in this book, that it would almost be too much. But for some reason, it worked for me. We talked about last year that a big, huge book that was a a lot of people's favorite book of 2022, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, Mm -hmm. to me felt like through a lot of these Mm -hmm. very modern cultural issues, everything but the kitchen sink into that book. And it ruined it for me when I wanted the book to just be about like friendship or whatever, mm-hmm. like there was like too much happening in that book. This book could have the same criticism in that it, there is a lot going on and they are all hot button topics. Like mm-hmm. every single one of them is like a thing that, that might feel dated in 10 years almost, mm-hmm. honestly, as a conversation, starter i don't know why it worked for me but it did maybe because it was couched in a whodunit Mm -hmm. so there's a conclusion to it versus like like tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow for example i'm not exactly comparing those two books but like where it just at the end is just feels open-ended and you're like well that was a lot of issues
2: (laughs) yeah it does just kind of end and you feel like you're leaving them but you could have continued right whereas
0: like in i have some questions for you you find out who the murderer is and it is a satisfying conclusion. Yeah. I also think, like,
1: given the conceit of that she's coming to teach the summer class mm-hmm. and, like, necessarily she's going to have to talk about these issues because she's there to, you know, so it was, like, a neat way to get exposition in and get deal with all the issues because we're going through her
0: as a teacher. I mean, that's, for me, why it worked. But I wonder if it worked for you, this teacher part, because you're a teacher. And what worked for me was the podcast part because of a right, podcast. Right. And
2: I'm neither, so it didn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it
1: made, I guess what I'm saying, contextually, it made more sense to talk about all the issues.
2: Uh-huh. Because there's a reason.
1: In and Tomorrow, Tomorrow, and Tomorrow, it's like, oh, you didn't need that. Like that's, which is funny, because I loved that book. I know i didn't I didn't dislike it, but mm-hmm. I see, which just so rarely happens. I see where Laura's coming from. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> but so the end result
0: is that it's not a five star book. It's like a three star for you. No, I think I gave it four stars, and I'm glad we're talking about it in this episode because it will not probably end up on the the end-of-the-year list, Mm -hmm. but it is a big book of the year. It is an author that I love Mm -hmm. and really appreciate what she's doing, and so it's something that I wanted to talk about and sort of mention, but it's kind of what you were describing at the beginning of our conversation, Yasmin, of like, there's always books that you kind of want to talk about, but they don't make the cut by the Mm -hmm. end of the year. Yeah. So that's why... This is one of those. This is one of those for me. Yeah. Totally. That makes sense. Steph. Steph, tell us what your next book is that you want to share about that you've loved in 2023.
2: So my next book that I would say is one of my best, although loved is a tricky word, is Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood by Maureen Ryan. Maureen Ryan is a journalist. She's written for a million different places. She writes a lot for Vanity Fair. And she wrote an entire book about the power structures in Hollywood. And the first kind of three quarters of the book is structured around what she calls like the myths of Hollywood. There's a chapter on Scott Rudin. There's a chapter uh, that largely deals with SNL. There's one that deals with the Lost Writers Room, all of which she kind of circles around one, like, overarching idea. So she talks about, like, in the SNL chapter, she talks a lot about the way that we treat comedians in our culture at large and this idea of, like, comedian as truth teller and how that is an idea that has really become part of the way that we treat comedians on, like, a working level and the ways that, like, criticism is shaped around comedy. And there's a bunch of different ideas she talks about. You know, the myth of like the necessary monster, she calls it, where it's like, you know, to get things done in Hollywood, you have to have someone who is just like toxic and abusive because they get things done. One of the things I love about this book, and I will say, love is a tricky word because so obviously I work in Hollywood. I will say for my personal experience, like I have had almost as blessed of an experience as you can have in Hollywood. I have worked by overwhelmingly, like work for overwhelmingly really nice people. And even I have had some experiences where when I read this book, I started it in the evening as I was like going to bed and I read the first two chapters. It made me so anxious. I got a stomach ache. My heart started racing. And I was worried I was going to have a panic attack. So I literally had to put this book down and come back to it. I read it. I've, like, read it one chapter at a time, always during the day. And then I cushion it with something nice. Because if you work in Hollywood, like, this is going to dredge up a lot of stuff. You know? Like, I've been screamed at, like, well and truly just absolutely screamed at. I've been sexually harassed. We all have. Like, it's... And I still think I've had, like, the nicest experience you can have in this town. So she doesn't really pull her punches. She calls people out specifically by name. Like, she lays a lot of the problems at SNL at Lauren Michaels' feet, and she talks about why. And the best thing about this book is that she really talks about institutions at large and the way that power works as opposed to just, like, individual bad actors. One of the things she talks about is like after Harvey Weinstein was arrested, we started treating him like the bar mm-hmm. where it's like if you weren't as bad as Harvey Weinstein, it's not that bad. So she was like, you know, she talks there's a a large section on Scott Rudin who is famously, you know, there's been a bunch of articles openly written for decades about the way he treated people who worked for him really toxic and abusive, incredibly just, like, emotionally damaging. I mean, she interviews the twin brother of a young man who worked for him, developed a severe anxiety disorder, and ended up committing suicide. Years later, but his twin brother, like, really traces it back to, like, his time working for Rudin. And he talks about that, like, people were like, well, I mean, he never lays hands on anyone. He's never raped anyone. It's not sexual. And so, therefore, Harvey Weinstein became the bar with which we measure all others, and that is such a dangerous way to think about our industry. And so, it's, like, a really hard read. I'll be perfectly honest. I have no idea if people outside of the industry will be interested in reading this. I cannot see beyond my own experience in this one. Like, I truly have no idea. But... I do think it's worth reading because I think the way that she looks at institutions is really interesting and the way that she talks about kind of these larger cultural ideas. For people who are interested in the book but aren't sure they want to read it, there were, there have been two excerpts that have been published in the trade. So the first one was the Lost Writer's Room section, which is in a very abridged section on the Writer's Room. That was published in Vanity Fair as just an article. And then there was part of the SNL chapter Is in one of the trades, either The Hollywood Reporter or Deadline. I can't totally remember. So you can dip in and see if you're interested before you commit to buying the book. I'm just hopeful that everyone will read it and we'll have a conversation. There will be a real, like, we should actually change the way things work. I'm probably... (laughs) Thank you. I know. I was about to be like, I know I'm being naive. And Yasmin just (laughs) laughs at me. But I do hope that, like, we talk about it, you know? Everyone I know is reading it. No,
1: I, I know. And, and listen, like, my question is, does she propose solutions? She does, actually. No, she does. But are her solutions actually viable? Because the other thing is, is that, like, I worked for three years trying to do exactly what she's talking about. Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot of resistance. And, it, and it's not just in Hollywood. Um, no. There's I, a, long, a book a long time ago about the financial industry um, called Tales from the Boom Boom Room, mm-hmm. where she's talking all about the same stuff. And we still haven't figured it out. Sure. So it's it's interesting to me that we forget that institutions are there for a purpose. And the purpose of the institution is to keep the institution going.
2: Oh, absolutely. So
1: when you are the one that goes against that, you just get fired. Like, you just, you know.
2: Which she talks about. And, like, I think... We need to collectively have a larger conversation about the power structures in our industry, which, like, I don't know if we ever will. I hope we do. I, I, I don't, but, I'm
1: not hopeful that that's going to happen because our industry is now run by corporate conglomerates who really don't care. <laughs> so I mean, are. but it's also just, it's also again, like, we can't go back to good. Hollywood started bad. Hollywood Babylon was a thing. Like, it started badly there was never a good time for us to return to but i do think it's interesting that people are actually now maybe starting to see that it's institutional issue and that we have to change policies practices and procedures which i've been saying for three
2: years well yeah i mean which so many people have been saying but i do think that needs to be the focus and we we need to think about it on a bunch of different levels because you can't just kick out three people and be like, we're fixed. Also, this is such a pet peeve of mine, but whenever anyone talks about bad apples, the expression is, one bad apple ruins the bunch. (laughs) We always forget the second half of that sentence. We're like, he was just a bad apple. And I'm like, yeah, so he ruined the bunch. (laughs) We're, We're missing the second half of that. And, like, she definitely takes that part into account. Yeah. I was really impressed with how many people went on the record. And some people who were, you know, accused of things, Damon Lindelof ran the Lost Writers Room, he talked to her openly about it. She uses a lot of pseudonyms which she talks about in the beginning. Most the vast majority of people are identified by first name only because they still work in this town. And they want to continue to do so what as I, I would like to. What
1: I like though is the
2: idea that there's an opening for redemption. Like, we can't just
1: say everyone's terrible. Yeah. We all have to go. But I do like this idea of, like, yes, it breaks my heart to hear that people thought this about my leadership. I was young, I was stupid, and now mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, like Tony Morrison says, I'm going to, now that I know better, I'm going to do better.
2: Yeah. And I think people, my hope is that people are going to reckon with the way that they see themselves in these chapters. You know, it made me very reflective of some of the things that have happened to me. And again, like, I've had a really good experience for the most part, but it's the part that I didn't. Yeah. That I've really thought about, and and I know that I got one fraction of what a lot of women, particularly women of color in this town, get. And, like, a handful of them talk about it very explicitly in the book. Yeah. What's the name of the book, Steph? So it's called Burn It Down, <laughs> Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood by Maureen Ryan. She frequently goes by Mo Ryan. She's not subtle, Mo. <laughs> She's not. She will tell you. She, she thinks we should burn it down. But I, I think it's worth reading. If you have any experiences that were difficult or traumatic at work, don't read it before bed. Or at all. Yeah, fair. Or, you know, everybody's uh, mileage may vary on this one.
0: Yasmine, what's your next one?
2: Okay.
1: Uh, My next book is The Shards by Brett Easton Ellis. I'm actually going to kind of co-do this one with another book called Everybody Knows by Jordan Harper. Both of these books are fiction, and they both take place in my hometown of Los Angeles. So I tend to be really drawn to books about L.A. So I'm going to start with The Shards by Brett Easton Ellis. This is, like, a vintage Brett Easton Ellis, you guys. This is, like, Less Than Zero. It was, like, it was... <laughs> I, and it's, you know, the character is called Brett Easton Ellis, and he's a student at Buckley, which is an independent school here in L.A., and Brett Easton Ellis went to Buckley. The author picture is his senior year picture. But it's so twisted, so it sort of brings in this whole like rich kids in the summer in los angeles and it harkens back to the early 80s when there's the serial killer on the run that is reminiscent of the hillside strangler i was here for that and the hillside strangler is probably is one of my earliest memories of like learning that i needed to be scared as a woman like i was a little girl and i was everybody was so scared so i just it's, it's very vivid for me that memory but there's you know there's there's all the Brett Easton Ellis stuff of, like, name dropping and Jordash and this and that and, like, smoking and I'm driving this car in the parking lot at Buckley. But I was, like, here for it. I, don't, I was here for it. I don't know why. I think, I don't know if it's, like, I think it's because there was, like, the murder mystery crime aspect mm-hmm. that was really sort of driving this, which isn't how he normally is. And I stopped reading Brett Easton Ellis after a book in the early thousands called, uh, early odds called The Glamorama. It was just too much. It was too Brett Easton Ellis. It was just like every other thing was like name dropping and brand dropping. And this one, he did it, but I didn't mind it because like, you know, the characters were not likable, but there was this whole other element of like in LA that I remember but I, and then there was this like murder mystery thing and like unreliable narrator and all the kids are doing drugs. You don't know if you can believe them or not, but I have no idea why I was here for it, but I was just totally here for it. And it's, it was, it was like, he was just like a better version of himself as a writer in this book. I don't know. I think he was, he was so Brad Easton Ellis,
2: but also like a grown up. So here's my question. So he's, The character is Brett. So it's like in The Plot Against America where Philip Roth is, like, writing about his family. But it's all fictional, right?
1: I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. But, you know, I was just sort of over him. I mean, I remember reading Less Than Zero and being like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Um, Because, again, it was, like, L.A. and, like, just all this stuff. And it's dark. I don't know if you guys have never read the book. Less than zero is like infinitely darker than the movie. Less than zero.
2: I don't think I've actually ever read any Brenniste. You the book is so dark, and the shards. This one
1: also super super dark. But I don't know. Maybe it's because I had watched the Net- the Netflix Night Stalker documentary, which mm-hmm. was I thought really cool. I was just ready for it, but he didn't bother me, and he used to bother me. So I was kind of glad to be like to like have him back and be like, okay. And it's a long book, but probably too long. Probably a good, like, 60 to 100 pages too long. But I was here for it. And I was just happy because I hated him after Glamorama. So I'm glad that I got him back. And the other book, very quickly, Everybody Knows by Jordan Harper. It's an L.A. noir novel, sort of in the Raymond Chandler-type vibe. But it weaves in some Me Too issues. Hmm. And it's about a publicist, sort of like, in the the grand tradition of the, like, fixers in Hollywood who come and save the day by putting a spin on stories. But what I did like about it is that it really captured, for me, just like, this sort of beautiful, disgusting darkness that can be Los Angeles. Yeah, it's about a publicist, and she, she has to cover up something that happened to an actress, and... Then she has her sheriff boyfriend and they're sort of like both working the same case, but then they have to basically turn against the people that they've been in these institutions that they've been a part of. But it's, it was super compelling and I actually read it really quickly. But again, like it's, if you like mystery, if you like Raymond Chandler, noir, Hollywood Land, all that stuff, this was. That sounds fun. It's a good book.
0: What's the second one called?
1: Everybody Knows by Jordan Harper.
0: Hmm.
2: I don't have to read that one.
1: What a title. (laughs) As in you don't like it?
0: As in it doesn't seem like a book you just have to pick up. (laughs) I don't know why. I mean,
1: fair. Fair criticism. I think I got it because I read about it in the LA Times. Mm. And there was a comparison to Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler is one of my most favorite authors ever. And he writes about LA like nobody else. Mm -hmm. With the exception of John Didion.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There you go. Should I talk about romantic comedy by Curtis Settenfield or Hello Beautiful by Ann Napolitano?
2: I read Romantic Comedy. I haven't read Hello
0: Beautiful. I read both. Okay, well, we might just do both because... Do
2: it to it. <laughs> because I did too. I
1: broke the mold. You always cheat.
0: I do. I do cheat because...
1: Cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater. There's too much to talk about. Uh, and they, but they always go together thematically.
0: Okay, let's just start with Romantic Comedy real quick. I'm a Curtis Settenfield fan. I'm not a completist of hers. I haven't read every single one. In fact, I purposely skipped the... Hillary Rodham Clinton one because, and then <laughs> I also skipped the wasn't there like a Jane Austen Eligible. reimagining mm-hmm. yeah skipped that one but I have loved the ones that I have loved. So I loved Prep. I super loved American Wife. I super, super loved You Think It, I'll Say It, which was a short story collection. Oh, yes.
1: We read that in book club. Yes.
0: Gosh, I just think Curtis Settenfield is smart and funny and kind of winking at us. And I just, I adore her. So I bought romantic comedy, even though, let me tell you what I don't like. Romance or comedy. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the truth. So deeply not a U-book. I love it. I know. I bought it because I did sort of trust her. I had another friend who had read an advanced copy who thought I would like it and recommended it to me. It was also a book of the month pick. You know, I was sort of craving something a little lighter. It came out in April when I was in the middle of all my own book stuff and just needed something that I thought might be a little bit more mindless. But I have said for years and years and years, and y'all know, I am so uninterested in books where romance is the main plot point. I'm uninterested in it. I find it to be boring. I don't like it. It bugs me. I'm always annoyed at the characters. <laughs> like, I just, it's just not my deal. But I trusted this one for all the reasons I already said. And still, I did have, I don't want to say low expectations, because I like Settenfeld, clearly. But I was just like, this is going to be just like a mindless thing that I can read. I enjoyed it so much more than I was expecting. So, I know you're giving me a look. Steph's going to weigh in in a second. But just a general overview of the book is... It's very obviously, like, not even hidden a little bit that it's based on Saturday Night Live, an SNL writer who writes for a weekly comedy sketch show that goes on at 11 o'clock live in New York. (laughs) So, like, it is very clearly this. There is a host. There is a musical guest. It is very obviously Saturday Night Live. And this SNL head writer, one of the head writers, gets into a platonic relationship with the musical guest and host for one of the episodes, and they have a sort of ongoing friendship that maybe starts to turn into something more. There are a few things I liked about it. One, I thought it was funny and smart. And two, I liked that a lot of the book was told, maybe not a lot, but a, a crucial sort of section of the book is told through email. Mm-hmm. Where they're writing emails back and forth to one another. And y'all, I just love a what's it called? An, An epistolary, epistolary novel. No, I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love letter writing. I love email mm-hmm. writing. Mm-hmm. I my one of my favorite books of all time is A Woman of Independent Means, which is fully that. Like I just I Love this device to Mm -hmm. tell a story. And so that's just one section of this novel, actually. But I I was enraptured by their emails back and forth to one another. They sort of misstep in the emails. They say weird Mm -hmm. stuff. It's awkward. They're like, so sorry I wrote you in a weird email. I thought that was funny. I just enjoyed this book more than I thought I would. We don't want to get into any spoilers here. And there's parts of the book that I would love to talk about but that do involve spoilers. But it takes a Hollywood Turn that I thought was mildly interesting. It also has the pandemic as a backdrop here. Not a main thing, but as just a sort of reason why we all go into isolation, because didn't we? And so I, I guess, was expecting to not like this book so much, especially with these sort of Hollywood aspects that sometimes I feel like it feels like a Movie version of Hollywood versus like a realistic mm-hmm. version of Hollywood. And this book definitely tends towards that. Like oh, it was no. not realistic on no. like any level. And so if you go in knowing like this isn't real, this isn't realistic fiction, if you will, <laughs> then I was able to just bop along and enjoy mm-hmm. the ride. But, Steph, you have a different take.
2: (laughs) I feel like you and I have swapped personalities ever so briefly. (laughs) I love romantic comedies. I read a fair amount of romance. You love Hollywood. I love Hollywood. (laughs) I love all the things. I am a Curtis Sittenfeld completist. I've read all of the books. I've read Eligible. I've read the Rodham. Like, I've read them all. I love her. She's If you asked me my favorite authors today, she's easily top five. I really didn't like this book. I had high expectations because it should be everything I like. I found the relationship between the two main characters to be kind of aggravating. I found the emotional arc to be really repetitive. It feels like she is hitting the same beat over and over and over and over again. And I found that really frustrating. I didn't feel like it was as deep As I was supposed to think it was. And also, I will say, I found the COVID stuff to be... It didn't work for me at all. Because to me, it felt like two different books. Completely. It was like the first half was the SNL stuff and the beginnings of this relationship, which starts as... Well, starts as tricky and becomes this platonic and then turns into something else. But halfway through the book, the pandemic starts. And I I felt like the books, the halves of the book had almost nothing to do with one another. Hmm. And I, it just, it did not work for me in any way, shape, or form. I really didn't like it. I've, I've never said this about a book of no. hers before. I love her.
1: I, I I'm going to hazard a guess that just from what I'm hearing you say, that you were reading it like a development executive and not like a reader. Because I feel like... No. Well, hold on. Okay. I feel like your criticisms of it (laughs) are those of a development executive. Like the thing... Oh, she hits the same beat over and over again. You're thinking about,
2: could this be something else? It's That's what it sounds like to me. I think it's possible because I can't turn that side of my brain totally off anymore. But I will say I did read this book entirely for fun. Like, this was one that I had, like, set aside. I got it. I was so excited to read it. It is not what we were going to option. Like, I think it had already been optioned by the time I read it. Like, I was stupid And maybe I went in, like, you went to really low expectations. I went in with really high expectations. Because I've I've really liked all of her books. I mean, I even really enjoyed Rodham, which I know you haven't tried. That's okay. I didn't read The American Wife because...
0: I love that (laughs) book.
2: I also love The American Wife, which is... No, I think I read Prep first. It just... I Honestly, it was the main character who who kind of annoyed me. I just wanted to look at her and be
0: like, honey, like, get over it.
2: I, I don't know. Just...
0: I did feel like she was really running into the ground, the hot guy, yes, messy girl trope. Yes. Well, it just felt like their only
2: friction in their relationship was her insecurity. Yes. And that is not enough to me to power a book. Like, it's just, she's so insecure and she's constantly questioning it over and over. And it's just like, okay, then call it a day or... Move on. Like, I don't know what to tell you, honey. Like, if you're too insecure to date this guy, like, I can't help you. He seems like a pretty good dude. I don't know what's going on here.
0: I mean, I don't like to read romance, but I feel like a major theme in certain romance is that you're really cheering on the underdog a lot of times, like, the insecure girl Mm -hmm. wins. Like, it felt like a nod to... That whole thing, the whole romance genre of wanting the girl to get the hot guy. Mm-hmm. The nerdy girl. Let's call her a nerdy girl because she's like a writer and she doesn't have a social life. And like all the things that I appreciated that she actually doesn't get much into her appearance. Not at so it all, it wasn't yeah. like the ugly girl gets the hot guy. It was sort of more like the nerdy... She doesn't think she's pretty. Yeah, like the girl
2: who doesn't think that much about her
0: appearance. Right. The workaholic girl gets the rock star Mm -hmm. kind of thing, which I sort of appreciated that it didn't delve into her body type or like, you know, that kind of thing, which I actually kept kind of waiting to see if it was going to do that. But it felt like it was just what I feel like. I have a lot of friends who read a lot of romance. and I know that both of y'all read romance sometimes, but that you're like, you want a reason to like cheer Mm -hmm. sort of for either the underdog or for the relationship to work out or for the guy to end up nice and not turn out to be a jerk Mm -hmm. or, you know, for someone to get the thing of their dreams that they never thought they could get. Mm -hmm. Like, that to me feels like a common theme in romance. And this just felt like a nod or wink to that. It was purposeful. Which is what she does, though. Yeah. that's that's, Her whole deal is winking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just because it was on the lighter side, a lot of her books are weightier, Mm -hmm. perhaps, than this one. But I was just thinking, without knowing this for sure, so I don't know this for sure, but, like, if she wrote this in COVID, when she just Mm -hmm. needed a lighter love story, and I can kind of appreciate that. It's not in the top, you know, five of what I've read of hers, Mm -hmm. but I was pleasantly surprised still.
2: Mine is just, I felt like I've read... So much of her work, I think, is so nuanced in the way it portrays relationships, whether it is, like, Prep, which is not a romance, but, like, has some really interesting character work. Same with, like, You Think It, I'll Say It. I also, like, I really loved her book Eligible, which is a uh, Modern Day Pride and Prejudice. Like, I think I've seen her write romance better. I also think I've seen her write much more interesting characters and characters where there's more to their dynamic yeah like there were just like no it's just one of those things where it's like if you take out her insecurity what is the plot of this book is there plot (laughs) it's unclear to me like it's just like nothing kind of happens except covid and i'm like well i lived that i know what that was like you didn't have to teach me that one
1: no i mean i liked i liked the fact that covid was an excuse for the epistolary format i thought that was i do like and then the isolation yeah no i thought that was good you know, whatever it was, I, I liked it, but I didn't love it.
0: Like I thought, it revealed a little bit some of something to myself about me as a reader, or maybe me as a human, that I just kept waiting for the rock star character. This is a, this isn't a total spoiler, but I'm just going to say it anyway. What about me? Just fully expected him to be a jerk. Oh yeah, yeah I yeah. was just waiting for the twist when he was going to be awful. mm Hmm. And I don't know if that's because I'm playing into that. The character was also yeah. maybe waiting for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or I was, her, the woman character was also waiting for that. Or if it was just me being like, okay, this can't just be... There's no such thing as too good to be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I know that I feel like in romance sometimes too good to be true is maybe a more common theme. Yeah. But I am too jaded to like that.
1: <laughs> And I think, I mean, one thing that struck me is that it was clear that she did a lot of research on the sketch comedy piece, right? Like, if I felt like I was reading Tina Fey. I felt like I was reading the whole book about SNL. I felt like the music aspect was way <laughs> underdeveloped. I'm like, oh, you wrote about the writers, but then you had this musician character, and you didn't do any research into him. Mm. He was just like the... Least interesting musician I've ever... You know, like, he wasn't... There was a lot more that could have been done there. But I felt like she was doing the thing that she was having fun with and that she identified with. So I thought there was a missed opportunity there to kind of, like, make him something else.
2: I don't think I've ever
0: X-Nade a book like this when you've been on the pro side.
2: No. Seriously, like, we're having a little Freaky Friday moment here.
0: Well, I'm also not, like a raving fan of this book in that again it's very similar to I have some questions for you by Rebecca McKine that I'm even bringing it up I've enjoyed it it's one of the books that I have enjoyed in the first half of 2023 it will not make it in my mm-hmm. top yeah yeah probably by the end of the year so, this is a chance to talk about it. Yeah, totally. And almost a chance to disagree with lower stakes. Because when we're talking about books at the end of the year, you yeah, know, we're like, these are the best, best books yeah. of the
2: year. Yeah.
0: You feel like you've got to bring your A-game, really. Yeah, like, these no, it's are true. The best. And you can't, and it's harder to disagree with yeah. someone who's deeming it the best. Anyway. I'm there. Do we?
2: Wait,
1: I don't know. I feel like us? you <laughs> disagree with me a
0: lot
2: when I bring my... No, I I
1: think it's true, though. I mean, I sort of like the conceit of the mid-year show being the, like, eh, this is kind of where we are. And we haven't quite had the time to, like, really reflect. We don't know what's going to happen in the next six months. So I I like that idea. Mm
0: -hmm. But I'm with you. I didn't love it. Okay, what's your next one? Let's reverse order. Yasmeen, what's your next one?
1: My next one is a nonfiction memoir, You Can Make This Place Beautiful, by Maggie Smith, the poet, not the
2: actress. Not dame. No. (laughs) I
1: loved this book. I didn't really know anything about it, I'll say. I was in Skylight, which is a bookstore here in LA, and I was looking at stuff, and I had four books already, and then I saw this one, and I was like, oh, I feel like I heard about this on NPR. I'm just going to pick this up. So I grabbed it, and I went home, and I read it, and it was like... It was so beautiful. Like there's something about the fact that she's a poet, that she could put like the the way the book is written is like each sort of chapter is just like a like a different time in her life, but there's some of them are lists, some of them are poems, some of them are a couple paragraphs. But like her words are so beautiful and the way that she puts them together is just it was really moving. And it also is, you know, it's about her and the dissolution of her marriage and really, really spoke to me about, you know, what's happening in my life. See, I'm sharing my stuff. (laughs) Um, But it was really, you know, it it was like reading my life and sort of slowly watching the dissolution of a marriage and the ramifications and, like, what it means for her now being separated and a single mom. And, you know, so I will say this. It was the first time since... I've been going through what I've been going through in my relationship that I felt like I could see a way out because I saw her find her way out. Mm. It was just, this was like a life-changing book for me because it was the book that made me go, I can do this. I can do this, even though it's not what he wants. It's not what people expect. And granted, the situation in the book is very different than what's happening in my life, but just like woman to woman, mom to mom, it gave me so much strength to say, like, this is going to end, and there's a way out of this, and you can do this, basically. And it was really sort of what solidified for me to make the decision of, like, you know, moving on from this relationship. And it was just so beautiful. And I think that was it, too. It was like, there's something about a poet that can, like, put words together that are really just get to, like, This isn't so pretentious, but I'm gonna say it. But like it gets to like the heart of humanity, and she like hit me in the heart with this stuff. Like it was really beautiful and it really just struck me. And I just I'm forever thankful that she wrote this book because it it just it just it changed me. That's so beautiful. Thank you.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I feel like a divorce memoir could be a hard sell. Fair But I really love Maggie Smith's writing, and I really loved this book. Also, there was a part of this book that stood out to me that I've been sort of almost chewing on for since I read it a month or so ago. Maggie Smith, the poet and the author of this book we're talking about, she had a poem after years of writing, mm-hmm. and she published some. Poetry books, and we you know was an established writer, but she wasn't exactly a household name or anything. And she had one poem in particular go viral to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm talking like read at the White House. It was in TV shows. It was... it was yeah. It was a poem that you've probably heard called "Good Bones." It's a beautiful poem, and she references this poem going viral, and basically catapulting her to a completely new level of success as the kind of final break in her marriage, that there were already things that were going wrong. And I thought that this was a really interesting way to... She doesn't start the story there. The story starts, actually, in an even more interesting place that I won't give away. But, well, I'll just say she she finds evidence of infidelity, like in the first page, basically. But then she goes on to be like, you know, but that wasn't... When our marriage ended. Mm-hmm. Let me back up into... And then she talks about this poem going viral years before and and how it affected her relationship. And I thought that this was, like, a super interesting timeline. Not choice, because this is her life and this is nonfiction. But, like, it's a poem. hmm And I feel like we don't hear this story of this very specific type of fracture. Like, maybe you might hear, oh... An actor got famous or a person became CEO and then that broke a marriage or whatever. But like to read it, it was so tender Yeah, that it was like a that's, poem. That's a, that's a good word for it. I just thought about the way she wrote about that fork in the road mm-hmm. in their marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone who's ever been married, all three of us at this table have been married, can like say, you know, if you were ever to tell the story of your relationship and it would be really hard to explain why one little sort of almost innocuous thing or one thing that was said or one particular fight over another particular fight or whatever made a real difference. That was a fork in the road for one reason or the other. And I thought that she just wrote about that. It was just extra special.
1: Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's the other piece that really resonated with me, that it was this, like, change in her station that affected the marriage, which is also... What happened with me. Like, I was in a Hollywood job, and then I went to another Hollywood job, but it was bigger, Mm -hmm. and more prominent, and more visible, and more money. And that was the thing that that changed it. And I do want to say for the record, my husband did not have an affair. But it was, that was the thing. Yeah, it was like, on on the outside, everybody was like, this is this great thing for you. It's so amazing, we're so proud of you, you're gonna do all this great stuff. But the way that I was experiencing it was, this is the thing that's going to break my marriage. This is the thing that's going to change the course of my daughter's life, my life, because I'm making the choice to bet on myself. And I just thought it was really interesting because she's also really, really smart and talented. But it made me think about how we as women just make ourselves smaller
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so we don't affect the ego mm. of the men that we're with even if they're not on the outside these like big ego alpha males because he's not either her husband is also like a sensitive kind of like you know arty guy but it's just when these things happen these shifts happen they just yeah they just sort of like reveal all the cracks and you can either fix it or it falls apart mm-hmm. and it was just interesting that like I don't know I just reading it, it made me realize like, oh, I want to let this fall apart. Like, I don't, I don't want to fix it. And mm-hmm. she was just really, it was nice to read through this process with her, you know, because it's the same thing with me. It was, I thought that I something good was happening to me and he didn't see it that way. And it's the same in this book. Like her husband was threatened by it and and it sort of came out of the blue for her. Mm-hmm. She was like, oh, I thought you were going to be proud of me, which is exactly what I said. I thought I was doing the right thing. So, yeah, I loved it. And I want to write her a letter and tell her how great it was. <laughs> but I think a lot of women are going to see this in this mm-hmm. book, see themselves and see this weird dynamic that happens. And it's called? You Can Make This Place Beautiful. And the title is so perfect. And you will understand it when you read the book. And I don't want to tell you what, where it comes from or why. But it is absolutely perfect. Yeah, it is. So, I loved it. That was a good
2: one. Steph, do you have one last one? I do. So, my last one, which you... I don't know, you both might have read, is Pineapple Street by Jenny Jackson.
0: hmm Did you read that one as well? I have it on my shelf, but I have not read it.
2: It's a fun one. It's a much less deep, to be fair. But Pineapple Street is about a very wealthy kind of old money family in Brooklyn, And it's from the perspective of the three women. There's two daughters. uh, The older daughter who has given up her trust fund in years past because she didn't want to have her husband sign a prenup. The younger daughter who is treated like the baby, even though she isn't one anymore, um, and is kind of dealing with what it is when people finally, like, call her out for her privilege. And then their sister-in-law, who's married to their brother, who comes from a like, middle-class family in New England and has no idea kind of what she's walked into. She, I think, did not realize that marrying someone in a different class would come with different social rules. She's constantly kind of, like, stepping in it unintentionally because she doesn't know what the rules are of this landscape, even though it's ostensibly her family now. Keep going. <laughs> it's it's really interesting. So it alternates between the three women's perspective. I will say the sister-in-law, Sasha, is the one that I cared about leaps and bounds more than the others. But it's interesting. It's kind of all about what happens when it starts with the Sasha and her husband moving in to the parents' home in this beautiful, like, Brooklyn brownstone on Pineapple Street because the parents have decided to move into an apartment and kind of downsize. And she's functionally not allowed to touch anything. She's, like, living in a mausoleum or, you know, a museum to her husband's childhood. And the way that this kind of family treats her as this interloper. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's not, like, particularly deep, but it's a really enjoyable read. My one caveat was, like... Towards the end, like they all kind of have their moment of realizing what they you know how they need to change. I wanted her to take the rest of them to task so much harder. She doesn't particularly like it all resolves in like a happy you know whatever but i I will say I did want her to come out swinging a little more, but I really I, it's kind of just a fun, enjoyable read. It's you know you have to have a certain level of tolerance for reading about the very wealthy. I don't mind those books. I find them escapist and fun, but like you you have to be willing to to take that. To not have disdain for the super wealthy one percenters. I mean <laughs> I don't even think you have to have that. Um but yeah, you have to have some level of it. Did you like it? I did. I mean again, like I didn't think it was super deep. I thought it yeah. was I thought it was It's like a fun summer read.
1: Yeah. It was cute. Yeah. I wasn't, you know. You weren't bowled over. No, like, this is the one. Remember I talked about the book that I read that I couldn't remember? It was this one. Yeah, (laughs) fair. (laughs) I was like, I know I read it. I can picture the cover. I have no idea what the hell it's about. But, you know, so it was forgettable, but cute.
2: Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, I think it's worth reading. I definitely, for me, this is, like, a good beach read. This isn't, like, yeah going to be the one that you recommend to everybody and their brother, but it's, like, a good beach read. I have... Important news for you.
1: Oh, just want to mention this. I finally read Into Thin Air.
2: Hey, the John Krakow. Yes! Artist. I'm proud of you. I just wanted to say that
0: on the podcast because everybody yelled at me last time, but yeah, we I hadn't definitely read it. Did, so. did you like <laughs> it? I did. Well, she didn't bring it to the table. Clearly, to talk about. well,
1: I really liked that. Book. I really liked it. I did because well, I'm saving it for later. But I just wanted to say I read it. I'm really proud of you. And then did a whole crazy deep dive. Into- oh yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> Every time I read a Crack Hour a Crack Hour book, I have to immediately go look up. I'm like I'm the opposite of like you with the Prince Harry book, where you're like, I didn't feel the need to find anyone else's side. When I read a John Crack book, I'm like,
0: I need to know everything you left
2: in and, like, put in and left out. I
1: just wanted to say, I have read it. I'm
0: proud of you. (laughs) Well, while we're giving disclaimers, I did not talk about Hello Beautiful by Ann Napolitano. I'm okay that I didn't because I am pretty sure that that one's going to end up on my end of the year list. So we will talk about Mm -hmm. it in December. I loved it so much more than I thought I would. Again, when I'm surprised by a book... It bumps up at least a half star. I was too. I okay. was really surprised by it as well. Okay. I'm we'll get pop- it
2: from the library right now.
0: We'll almost assuredly talk about that one mm-hmm. in December. So I'm just mentioning it here for anyone who might want to put it on their list, their library list, their to read list. We are going to close this conversation because we have talked for over two hours. <laughs> and we've been here for five and a half. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's not at all unusual for us. <laughs>
0: But we are going to pop over to Patreon for just a few minutes and tell the secret stuffers the books that we haven't liked this year. (laughs) Even though actually we did a little bit of that today. I was going to say, my
2: hot takes came out in the main.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, but there are a few books that I want to sort of just verbally process with the both of you that I know we have read or um, talked about before. And so we are going to be doing that over Secret stuff, if you want to hear the rest of this conversation, you can always join us by going to lauretremain.com/slash secret stuff. It is my monthly membership community where I do a reading roundup every single month of what I've been reading, like it or not. I share everything that I've been reading at Secret Stuff every single month. And then we have overflow episodes like this. When it doesn't fit on the main show, it goes over at Secret Stuff, the stuff that we don't want to talk about fully publicly. So you can join us there at laurachemaine.com slash secretstuff. Otherwise, this has been an amazing conversation <laughs> as usual. I'm so glad that we did a mid-year conversation about books. In 2024, we're going quarterly, you guys. Like, Yeah,
2: it's got to happen. It does. It has every to happen. Th- we're just, this is going to turn into our literal book club. <laughs> yes. It's like every book club is going to be on tape. I oh, don't man. hate
0: it. I don't think that we say anything differently on mic than we do otherwise. We really don't. <laughs> Or maybe a little too unfiltered on the (laughs) mic. No. I think there's a lot of stuff that was said in that other room that we would never say on the (laughs) fair.
2: It is the Share Your Stuff (laughs) podcast, though, so, you know, what are we going to
0: say? All right. Thanks for listening, friends. We always love having you here. Bye. 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 You've just listened to an episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. For show notes and links, go to 10thingstotellyou.com. Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You, and you can also join our free connection group on Facebook to discuss episodes and topics. For bonus content, ad-free episodes, and monthly Zoom gatherings with me, join my Secret Stuff Patreon community by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secretstuff. Thanks for listening.